Welcome to Ascending Olympus, the Inner Sanctums Olympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and today I'm joined, as always, by Dan. And we've got another Inner Sanctum guest, which is Alex Catalano. So how are you today, Alex? Good. Making my debut for Ascending Olympus. Very, very happy to be here. Obviously, as the Sanctum's resident skateboarding slash Chinese volleyball slash whatever other sports need covering expert, I'm uh, very happy to be here. Good to say that you're willing to dip into like everything possible. <laughs> <laughs> I think honestly, it's one of the best parts uh, about the Olympics is learning about sports that you've never really watched all too much of before. And we've already seen that heaps, I think, with some of the leading events and qualifiers and things like that. We get to get exposed to so many interesting sports across the world. Um, and what better time to do it than right now? And Dan, you're not the only person in lockdown this week because both Alex and I are as well now. Um, how are you traveling? <laughs> Yeah, look, it's, it's a nice change to know that everyone's going to be uh, locked in with me and locked in on the Olympics coverage. Um, <laughs> there's going to be plenty of time to watch all sorts of inter- interesting sports. Um, but I'm, you know, the more that we get closer to the games, the more some of the news is starting to worry me a little bit. And um, we might kind of jump into that with obviously the biggest story um, of the day at the moment is that uh, someone tested positive for COVID inside the Olympic Village today. Mm-hmm. It was um it was always going to be inevitable, wasn't it? I think I saw a quote the other day. I think it was it might have even been from someone within the um, Olympic Committee saying they expected about a hundred people or so to come into the Olympic Village with COVID, um, which is obviously concerning. Um, but I think that was always going to be the worry holding it in a country which is obviously still within a state of emergency. Well, and also you're yeah. just bringing so many athletes from countries with different COVID policies, um, well, with different COVID policies, I should say. The It'll be interesting to see with this Delta variant how that maybe makes it go off a little bit or if a couple of teams don't end up coming over for the Olympics because cases are getting worse in a number of countries. Great Britain is the most obvious example right now. But... There was a press conference last night that the IOC had and they said about 15,000 athletes, officials, everything else had landed in Japan and they were saying a number around 45 was how many had tested positive, which is an encouraging figure in a weird way, but also that's 45 is still a lot when it's going to be such close quarters in the Olympic Village regardless. But thankfully it is now two people total I believe or maybe three people total that have tested positive in the village yeah absolutely and and I think that while that 45 number is a little bit scary the two things to note kind of for me are that one it's a test of these protocols and how they work and how they're actually going to be enacted and two I think that the biggest risk for the Olympics is right at the start once athletes have been inside the bubble for a week or they've been inside their testing protocols in the bubble for a week a week and a half once we get to the games the risk is reduced because there's not going to be any contact from the outside world. It is effectively a bubble. And 
if all goes to plan and they can keep COVID out, there's not going to be any problems inside. Yeah, the one thing that worries me, though, obviously it's only going to go ahead as safely as possible, but public opinion does worry me a little bit. I know, obviously, you can't change too much around what people say, but uh, we know what people within Japan have been saying. Approval rate of the Olympics, obviously, is quite low at the moment. Um, But just in general, even in Australia, um, I'm beginning to hear, you know, people saying left, right and centre, wondering why we are still doing this thing um at the moment but i think once it actually starts uh we will see that sort of you know the olympics is a time that brings people together and especially as australians we are absolutely nuts about our sports so i can only see it sort of being a positive especially with as we said a couple of states in lockdown um just in terms of yeah from a spectator point of view well yeah and it is interesting to speak on that because as we've done every other week or so, looked at the approval rating that constantly shifts. It's always a fairly low number of people that think the game should go ahead inside of Japan. But um, at the same press conference last night, Thomas Bach asked the Japanese community to really get behind the games and celebrate the games. And he was faced with pressure essentially from the Japanese media that were like, well, how are we supposed to do that when people in Tokyo can't celebrate the games together? And I think that is emblematic of a little bit of the Olympic Committee might be a bit out of touch in this situation. But it's also just once the games start versus right now, it's going to be like chalk and cheese in a lot of ways. People will get behind it when it's actually happening. But right now you just can't ask that of people. Until the games actually start, this is the news. This is what people are going to be talking about. Um, And so it's going to have that 24-hour coverage and We've seen it a little bit so far in that, um, at least so far, it looks like athletes' privacy um, and officials' privacy has been respected and we're not um, publishing the names, ages, genders of, of athletes who are um, competing and who have tested positive or, or um, inco- inconclusive. And I hope that that continues because it is obviously a health issue at the end of the day and we need to respect people's privacy like that. Yeah, and ultimately when those athletes withdraw you're not necessarily going to know because they might say it's due to injury, but athletes will be forced to withdraw if they test positive and that's the end of the matter. Um, It doesn't matter right now who it is. Well, yeah, it's funny you say that because we have already seen um, a few Australian athletes have to withdraw. Um, Obviously the headliner of that being Alex Demonar just the other day, um, which obviously not ideal for the tennis team. We would have liked to see the demon out there. Um, yeah, especially given as well, Curios pulled out just a few weeks ago too. Um, but obviously replacements being named, which is good to see. I think it's good just in terms of um, a few more athletes getting their chance. I can't imagine the scramble of trying to get over to Japan and getting ready for the Olympics literally like less than a week out of it though. Yeah, and there's been a bit of a scramble, I guess, this week, just touching back more to the COVID side of things um, with a staff member for Athletics Australia having producing an inconclusive test on Thursday. And the Australian Olympic Committee actually ended up making a statement about it on today, which is Sunday, confirming that they returned two negative tests whilst in Cairns after producing that first inconclusive test. And that on top of that, because they came from Melbourne to Cairns when they produced the inconclusive test, they have not been at any of the 
sites where there's been people contracting COVID essentially exposure sites is the phrase that I was thinking of, which is great for the athletics team because then we don't have team members in doubt by any stretch of the imagination um, right now. But also it is scary to get those inconclusive tests rather than just a flat positive or a flat negative. And, and it's going to be something that we, we see a bit more of. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that in terms of contacts for inconclusive tests and how fast and how sudden they get those. And that'll be a real test of the protocols. But it is exciting to see that um, there are no issues in Australia, at least. And we had obviously the biggest contingent of athletes arrive over the last couple of days um, with the swimmers, rowers, cyclists, and a bunch of other athletes who have early events arriving um, over the weekend. And it looks like the digs are pretty good. And they've obviously got all the protocols in place that we talked about last week um, with Australia HQ and a separate gym and the nutrition hub to keep people out of the dining hall as much as possible. So it looks like we're doing okay from an Australian point of view, um, but we'll see how it goes. Um, one of the other big mysteries that's maybe not quite so COVID related is that we actually don't know much about the opening ceremony, even though it's on Friday. Um, we do know that there are no fans. We do know um, that there's going to be a couple of VIPs and dignitaries. But other than that, we don't actually know very much at all. Right, Jackie? No, um, which is, it's funny because like you look back to London and we vaguely knew a lot of stuff like that was going to happen at those games, um, at that opening ceremony, I should say. It's exciting that there's a bit of mystery around it, but at the same time, we don't even know how many athletes are actually going to be allowed to walk in the Parade of Nations. Um, we know that there'll be flag bearers and we know two flag bearers for each country, and we know that there will be allowed to be six officials walking, but the number of athletes is a mystery. So we could have the contingent of 200 all be permitted, that are currently in Japan, I should say, all be permitted to walk in the Parade of Nations. We could also only have like 20. And that is a question that is interesting and whether it'll be proportional to the size of the Olympic teams would be another thing that would be funny to see because it could be that some countries that have really small contingents are only allowed to have their flag bearers. I was going to say, if it's just going to be the flag bearers for like the bigger nations, and does that mean that the really small ones have to have like a quarter of a person um, at the opening <laughs> ceremony if we're doing the maths that way? Um, but I think in terms of safety, like I, I don't see why, obviously it would be like for the theatre of it all, it would really suck if it was just the flag bearers. Like it's, you know, it's a chance for every nation to sort of show their pride um, and, you know, show off what makes their country unique. We've seen a lot of countries um, sort of at the Winter Olympics as well really demonstrate um, their nationalities and their heritage and things like that. So it would be a shame, I think, if, the, if a lot of team members didn't get to do it. Um, but safety has to come first and foremost. And I think if there's anything that we're sort of harping on the last 10 minutes is that they're going to want to make the games as safe as possible. And if it means an opening ceremony cut down a little bit from usual yeah, it would suck. But um, I think the other thing that I'd have to wonder about is will TV broadcasters be okay with the opening ceremony being quite, uh, I guess, a non, um, like a non-performance and almost just being quite understated and different from regular years? So if I was to theorise about the opening ceremony, I think a lot of it could end up being quite pre-recorded 
um, mm. rather than a live show, which makes sense both for safety protocols, but also there's so much cool stuff you can do, like whether it's live or pre-recorded. Um, and the fact of the matter is, it's still going to be a really cool opening ceremony. The teaser for Japan at 2016 was also awesome. Um, so I, yeah, I don't think that it's going to be a opening ceremony that broadcasters will be unhappy with. Um, it's just going to be something that we're all going to be massively surprised by, by the sounds of it. <laughs> and I think it'll be a great chance for the Japanese to really showcase their culture and heritage, um, especially with so much of it being pre-recorded they'll have the chance to do things the right way and they won't you know, be constrained in some of the ways that we've seen previous Olympic Games be constrained by. But I wouldn't be shocked if the entire delegation for Vanuatu is marching in the Parade of Nations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you speak about the Japanese culture and I've been a big fan of um, sort of reading up on all the individual events and there's uh, a few of them have those little hand-drawn animated uh, like explanations of the rules and previews. I love things like that. Like that's that's what the Olympics is all about. Like it's getting these um, Japanese artists and animators and, you know, creative people to be able to showcase a bit of their stuff. Um, even in such unique circumstances. I think it's a really, really good way to go about it. The thing that we will miss out on, because when things happen live, things just go wrong. Um, and <laughs> a fine example of that, I think it was at Sochi where the Olympic ring didn't open properly, like oh one God. of them. And so there was that one that was really small. And it's just like, yeah, that's something that we're going to miss out on that's going to be an awesome meme. But at the same time, it's just like it'll be possibly one of the most smoothly run opening ceremonies if a l large chunks of it are pre-recorded as long as the server doesn't crash that's you know running those recordings because that could be disastrous <laughs> that would be one of the most 2020 slash 2021 things to happen so absolutely pencil it in. but one of the things that we will be missing out on um at the opening ceremony and, and the games as a whole is spectators um with the japanese state of emergency um spectators would not be permitted under those rules and while the IOC announced yesterday in their press conference that they're holding out hope that if the state of emergency lifts fans will be permitted I think it's very optimistic of them to take that view um, and it's quite unlikely um, but what will be interesting is that it will um, also affect the way that the economics of the games work um, we obviously know that international tourism is not on the cards for this games and and so much of the benefit that comes with the games for that um, won't be there. But also you're not going to be able to get the activations and stadium revenue and things like that, that even if you had domestic fans in, you won't be able to run. And I think that's a, a real shame for Japan. I think um, no doubt after the games and after it's safe to travel internationally, I think Japan will probably still see a pretty decent um, tourism spike, but no, you're right. It is like, that's a, another big part of the games is being able to get people traveling from all over the world to get over there. So it is disappointing. Um, but I think the right thing for Japan to do and for tourism in Japan, definitely some really aggressive advertising campaigns after the Olympics, I think would go a long way to uh, getting people over there once it's safe to do so of course well and the olympics is one of the best advertisements for tourism both during and after the games um and there's some events like the cycling the open water swimming that they will just be allowed to showcase the scenery of different areas in tokyo and wider japan i believe the road cycling sapporo um 
And that's something that whilst it'll be a shame that we won't get to see like fans alongside the road or that sort of thing in the cycling, there will be points where people that realistically would like to travel to Japan in the next 12 months that go, oh my God, that one specific architecture structure looks really cool. I want to go visit there and go to Japan. And it not only pushes the Tokyo tourism, which will explode when they're when people are allowed to travel there, but it'll help like with the wider area of Japan, especially up north where there will be a lot of events. Yeah, I mean, just sort of reading through the news and stuff, I think it might not even, they might not even be too mad about it because some um, areas are suffering from a bit of over-tourism and, you know, the environment's sort of suffering a bit more. Um, but on the Olympics as a tourism campaign, I'm sure Dan can speak to it best that the uh, Tour de France is one of the best advertising campaigns um, <laughs> ever created. But even thinking about the Winter Olympics, seeing the mountain ranges of Korea and things like that, I'd never really put too much thought into travelling to Korea or somewhere that I would want to go, but it's absolutely beautiful. And I think the opportunity to get to see more of that is only a good thing. Yeah, and, and France obviously has benefited um, every year from the Tour de France and, and many of those cycling races do. And the Olympics is going to be no exception because the road cycling will ride right past Mount Fuji. And we're going to get that iconic landscape as part of the backdrop. And based on the way the course looks, it's probably going to be the backdrop for the critical moment of the race. Will and there be a single uh, cycling article that does not use an image of the cyclists going past Mount Fuji? Depends it's on the really interesting. Last year, there was um, this at the World Championships. There's a spectacular mountain range that they rode over the top of it, um, in Austria, and the winning attack in both the men's and the women's was on this kind of spur where it's this mountain, and just behind it is valley, and both moments were captured by helicopters, um, and the angle of it is just spectacular. And both areas of Austria have said that you know since that, having that blasted over televisions all around the world and in all the photos. They're seeing some tourism, which in Europe is obviously possible with all the way the vaccinations are going, to those areas for people to hike through those spots. And I think we'll see some of that with Japan. So while it might not be a great um, income bringer at this point, I think in the future it will pay off once we are allowed to do international travel again. And I, for one, can't wait to get back on a plane. And, you know, Japan will be on my list. Uh, we might move along to... Uh... World athlete news, I guess, is the way that we phrase this segment. Um, and Dan, you had a look at New Zealand's focus on Laurel Hubbard coming up in the games. Yeah, so we've talked about Laurel Hubbard a few times because um, she's someone who's coming back from a career-threatening injury, um, and she is a, a trailblazer in the sense that she's going to be the first transgender Olympic athlete. But what made news? This week was the New Zealand Olympic Committee came out with a pretty strong statement saying that they're working very closely with her um, to protect her mental health as much as any other athlete. And um, it looks like they're going to have some limits on her media access, which probably makes sense given the way that the media might have hounded her. Um, but Hubbard, who's a very private person, is probably stoked just quietly that she doesn't have to do much media. Um, but what has been interesting is that her competitors, um, including Australian Charisma Amo Tarrant, who's going to be in the same 87 plus kilogram weight classes, said, you know, she has nothing but respect for Hubbard and she wishes her the best and, and to her and all the other lifters um, that everyone gets to enjoy the Olympics and, and compete well. And for Hubbard, who's coming back from a 
potentially career-ending injury, it's a pretty big achievement. I know there was another um, developing weightlifting story, which I think sort of caught everyone by surprise. Um, it's sort of a unique one. We sort of hear tales about uh, Olympic uh, Olympic athletes from countries where they might need to seek refuge from disappearing in the Olympic village. But um, Julius, and I'm, I promise I'm going to say this name wrong, Julius Sakitaleko, a 20-year-old Ugandan weightlifter, didn't show up for his daily COVID-19 uh, test before, I believe, um, heading on to whatever the next stage it was he needs to do uh, to get there. But um, he's disappeared from his hotel without warning, bought a train ticket to Nagoya, um, and apparently he's requested to have his uh, belongings handed over to his wife in Uganda. So a bit dramatic story there, and I'm... Um, I guess it's an interesting one to sort of follow. All the best for him, obviously. Um, but, yeah, just shock, I guess, is the word. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely a, a bit of an interesting one. And it's probably not one we associate with Uganda, I think. Um, you know, with the way history's gone, North Korea is probably a country that we might expect more of that from. Um, but uh, Sekitoleko um, has flown basically from or he's fled from Tokyo and from the village um, on his way out to Nagoya and we'll see what happens. But um, yeah, we don't, we don't know much. We know that the Ugandan Olympic committee have spoken to him and confirmed his health. Um, They weren't able to find anything about his whereabouts at the time. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. I think that the most that you can wish for is that he is somewhere that is safe um and secure for him but yeah it's the one thing is that like you just get stuck and you're like it's a strange story regardless but it's you'd expect it to be north korea or possibly even china but more specifically it just makes you think of the soviet union in the 70s and 80s (laughs) athletes potentially doing it then it doesn't sound like a story that would come out in 2021 um but here we are, and all that we can hope for is that he's somewhere safe and that his family at least knows where he is as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we can hope for, and um, we'll keep following this story as more comes out, if more comes out, um, and we hope that he is the best um, and, and all the best for him. Um, but Alan Bircher um, from British Swimming is going to be uh, excluded from the Olympic Games. And Jackie, you had a bit of a look at that story. Yeah, so it's a similar story that we've been hearing a lot in the past Olympiad in that an investigation into a sporting culture happens and an individual will be singled out and they're typically coaches. Um, so Australia recently had a similar scandal that Maddie Groves uh I would say exposed in the, just the toxic culture that swimming has. So there was a 12 month investigation um, and the allegations are pretty serious. And yet at the same time, I know it's hard to say, but unsurprising. So it's a culture of bullying, fat shaming, defying COVID restrictions, which is ridiculous. And at the same time, just so many different organizations have had issues with individuals rather than officials um, defying COVID restrictions and then failing to report safeguarding concerns at an elite swim club that he ran, which that's probably the biggest, like 
wall because there can be so much behind those sort of concerns in air quotes. Alex? <laughs> yeah, on the, the body shaming stuff, um, it does make me sort of wonder if we need to reopen a conversation around how we talk about athletes' bodies. I think it's sort of been a long-time accepted thing where people are very, I guess, comfortable to um, sort of talk about or negatively discuss uh, an athlete's physique or, you know, if they're carrying a bit of extra weight or something like that, that you might not necessarily expect on the uh, on an athletic figure. Um, and I guess, yeah, just this sort of makes me think about that and whether it's going to raise discussions around whether we need to change how we look at and discuss that kind of thing. Yeah, it was really interesting. I had a chat with um, Dr. Brady O'Donnell, head of the Tour de France, um, and she's obviously got a medical degree and she was talking about the fact that when they do commentary, they're looking at changing how they talk about athletes' bodies because particularly with something like the cycling, we spend a lot of time looking at athletes' backsides and legs and how slim they are uh, because they go uphill really fast and obviously they're not carrying a lot of weight. But the way that we talk about it to make sure that it's respectful and that we're not kind of body shaming them or, or glorifying it because the way that their bodies are, particularly by the end of the tour, um, is generally related to the stress they've put the bodies under through the three weeks of the tour. You know, riders who are 63, 64 kilos coming in have lost three kilos over the course of the race just because that's how much energy they're expending and we shouldn't glorify that. So I think this is a, a step in the right direction, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah, especially with the discussion of um, female athletes, I think um, particularly in something like the AFLW, just step away from Olympics for a second, I've sort of uh, heard plenty of men who still obviously aren't um, around how damaging comments can be, particularly in relation to um, body image and things like that. Um, and I think it's something that does need a bit more education around because, you know, media always drives the language and the way that people understand these sort of issues. So I think it is a very interesting topic to look at in regards to this. Well, and just if we look at Maddie Gross's situation, um, she used the term medically gaslighting on top of the fat shaming that she underwent because she's someone that suffers with endo and that does affect people's bodies. Like they will gain and lose weight quite suddenly and that would be presumably a part of this problem is that there is just no real introspective looking within these sports about issues that weren't talked about very much, especially health issues, even five years ago. But now there is a lot of people talking about something that is pretty common, at least for women. Um, it's by no means like 50% of women suffer with endo, but everyone knows someone that does at the same time. It's also something that's very highly misunderstood um, from my understanding, even with medical professionals still don't necessarily know the best advice to give. Um, so yeah, it's something that could do with a bit more awareness as well. I think that we are starting to see it um, and people like Maddie Groves bring it to light and the suspension um, and, and there's a bit of a culture shift as well in the AFLW are all a starting place, but we know it's not solved and Emily Seabom kind of took a dig at that at trials um, just a week after Maddie Groves' announcement. She kind of made an offhand comment um, after a race that indicated that maybe it wasn't alone. It wasn't Maddie alone in going through that. 
Yeah. And like I said this a couple of times on the pod, sport is going through a reckoning at the moment. It is something that happens slowly, but this is these sort of issues are going to touch every sport and there is going to be every sport getting exposed, whether it's a few individuals or systemic problems. It's just that these sports, particularly ones that have a lot of young women in them, are the first ones where it gets called out and noticed. I would like to think that as people of our sort of generation, you know, people born in the mid to late 90s who sort of have grown up with a bit more of an understanding and even people younger than us as well who've been exposed to it from day dot, um, as they sort of start to get into higher up positions and instead of becoming the players, they start to become the coaches and the officials and things like that. And they're the ones making the decisions. Um, I think a lot of these more, um, I think issues that we have a lot more understanding of how to talk about and how to treat and how to explain to others and just have a bit more sympathy in general around these kinds of things. You know, I think you look at the response to a lot of, a lot of like um, Liz Cambage's uh, pulling out of the Olympics, you know, I think there's a lot of people showing a lack of understanding of mental health and how that can affect people in such high pressure situations and things. So, yeah, I think it's um, it's something that I'm glad to see being highlighted a lot more and it really spreads out to a lot of other issues along a similar note. Yeah, and I guess touching on Cambay, she's not the only basketballer that's had to withdraw in the recent days that was a part of that Las Vegas camp in a lot of ways. Uh, the US, Team USA, I should say, is Bradley Beal has had to withdraw from the Olympics because he's been placed under health and safety protocols after a positive COVID test. Um, the phrase that the uh, that Jeremiah Grant, who is also being enforced under those health and safety protocols, is out of an abundance of caution because only Beal has tested positive so far, but Grant is a close contact with him. It's interesting. I guess just to look at it from an Australian point of view, obviously you never want someone to pull out because of COVID. Um, that is the highest scoring or the second highest scoring player in the NBA for last year. So it's uh, it's a big blow for them. Um, I think other sides will be seeing Beal uh, having to pull out um, and I guess be dreaming of maybe getting a little bit higher and doing a bit better against Team USA than they would have otherwise um, but yeah, you don't want to see, like we discussed before, there's a few other players pulling out with COVID concerns and you really don't want to see it happen that way. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a bit of a concern when Bill, well, it was first announced that Bill had tested positive that uh, the boomers were going to be all close contacts and we're going to have to spend 10 days in isolation. Um, and I'm still not exactly sure how the determination of close contacts work. But I think we're going to see more of that during the Olympics in terms of how people are classified if someone tests positive later on. Um, and that could potentially be a bigger story if someone is withdrawn from an event as a close contact. That's going to be big news, I think, at the end of the day. Yeah, um, it'll be huge news, especially once it's in the village and the village is full. I believe at the peak they're going to have over 6,000 athletes within the village. Um and what does that mean if a handful of people in one national team that is as sizable as Australia or the US is, does that mean that an entire floor worth of athletes is going to end up having to pull out or something or other? Because that could be huge. Um, just touching on back to more the Team America side of things, I think that it's a bit ignorant to uh, 
say puff your chest out and say oh our country is now a chance USA might not make it out of the group stage because they've lost Beal and Grant um Team USA had a squad of 56 originally. They can sub in anyone they want, provided the visas are able to be expedited. Uh, they, they'll, they'll be expedited. They're going to have a team of 12, like, I without will say, a doubt. I will say it's more dreaming that the boomers can um, hit the podium, but, you know, we can only dream as Aussie enough that something will happen for Australian <laughs> basketball at the Olympics this year. Um, speaking of medal chances, though, there's one guy who is going for... A very, very uh, obviously um, well-renowned and huge achievement. And that is Novak Djokovic, who is looking to make it a golden slam this year. He's obviously still got two events to go, but he will be competing at the Tokyo Olympics for a chance at that gold medal. Jackie, I know you are our resident tennis expert. Um, You were, I don't know how to describe your attitude after Wimbledon, but you seem to think that the golden slam is on. Yeah, I think that the attitude was despondent. (laughs) It's not a secret that I am not a Djokovic fan. Uh, Thankfully, number two in the world, Daniil Medvedev is still going to try to beat him. But um, yeah, I think that he's in the form of his career that he should win in Tokyo. The Olympics is a different beast. He's a player that feeds off the crowd, similar to Kyrgios does despite the fact that they don't like each other and they have different on-court temperaments. But if there was ever a time for it to happen, it's in 2021, I think. Um, Obviously, no one has had a Golden Slam aside from Steffi Graf in 88. But Djokovic is in such fine form that if he wins the Olympics, it's going to be so hard to see someone beating him at the US Open. And a similar story could be said about Alcott in the quad wheelchair tennis or um the dutch player whose name just slips my mind completely in the women's wheelchair singles so it's one of those years where you're just like everything seems to be falling into place for Djokovic with all the withdrawals that have happened it makes it even more likely but you've got people like Medvedev and Tsitsipas who could create an upset as well I think the um it's certainly gonna be like I, I don't remember actually watching tennis uh, at the Olympics the past few, probably, uh, I can't recall maybe as far back as Rio, um, but like, it's going to be a huge event. Like, I know people are sort of, there's always talk about, you know, events like um, tennis or football or things like that. Like, you know, the Olympics isn't even their biggest event. So, you know, why would they care about winning gold there? But it's going to be, it's going to be good regardless. Like, it's more tennis, come on. Yeah, exactly. And I guess we already touched on it earlier, but obviously Alex Demidor will not be competing due to testing positive for COVID-19. And he's been replaced by Max Purcell in the men's doubles. Uh, So he will partner up with John Pierce in the doubles competition. Purcell is no stranger to doubles. He reached the Australian Open final with Luke Seville in 2020 but he will not be competing in the singles. That um, process is a roll-down quota, so it'll just go to the next ranking in the world that wishes to go at this later stage. Um, I believe as of last night, our time, that had not been decided. India's Sumit Nagal um, was the latest addition, but he'd been added two days prior to Demon Oil pulling out. So we're still waiting to hear who that next player is going to end up being. 
Yeah, we were, um, like we also heard that there were going to be two more athletes joining the Australian team as well. Uh, Nathan Lawson in the Rugby Sevens and Georgia Wilson joining the Hockey Roos squad. Um, so I cannot imagine what it's like for them getting the call up at this stage. It's uh, pretty pretty wild, I think, to get your call up, your Olympic call up at all, but to get it only a few days out of the actual event starting, pretty wild. But good, uh, best of luck to them, of course, like all our other athletes getting over there. And, and those three athletes joined 16 who were named earlier in the week as last-minute replacements. Um, some of those are due to a change in eligibility, so um, athletes who were previously replacement players and therefore not technically part of the squad or not Olympians um, have been added. And so that accounted for a good chunk of that kind of 16 additional athletes. But some of them were athletes who were brought in from outside the squad to replace athletes who have been withdrawn um, we talked about last week the fact that the cycling team was cycling through replacements, um, literally. Um, and Luke Durbridge was, in fact, picked. Um, and he uh, went pretty well last night in the individual time trial. He gave a, a pretty solid effort and finished in reasonable nick. But uh, certainly it was a warning shot in the Tour de France last night um, by Wout van Aert, who looks like he might be an Olympic gold medalist the way he's riding at the moment. I can't wait to hear the first question that's asked to Nathan Lawson um, when he makes his Rugby Sevens debut for Australia (laughs) because the fact that he's never played with the national side and will get his first cap at the Olympics is unreal. Like that is such an exciting achievement on top of the fact that it's then going to be at the Olympics that – I hope that he plays the game of his life just because you are now on the world's biggest stage rather than just on a stage where it's the fans that follow the sport. People that don't care about Rugby Sevens are going to watch him play his first ever game and it's going to be awesome. How do we get uh, How do we get the link to that Zoom presser? <laughs> I think we need to arrange that. <laughs> Other athletes who have kind of had their... Uh, Preparation for Tokyo disrupted um, and not in such a good way as finding out a week before that you now have Tokyo preparation um, have been eight members of the track and field team um, who were not able to get up to Queensland to join the staging camp that the team has been running. Um, We had Steve Solomon, Morgan Mitchell, Annalise, Ruby Renshaw, uh, Nick Hoch, and then uh, Sarah Carley, Jenny Blundell, Georgia Winkup and Mackenzie Little were all prevented um, because they're all in Sydney as uh, lockdown. Um, they weren't uh, permitted to enter Queensland as part of the staging camp, and they're going to conclude their preparation um, from Sydney. Um, I spoke to Georgia Winkup yesterday, and she was saying that Athletics Australia have arranged a limited amount of uh, track time for these athletes, so they can still get out to the athletics track at the Olympic Park where um, the nationals were staged earlier in the year, but it's obviously not the kind of preparation you want to have ahead of Tokyo. Yeah, I think it's um, emblematic that the decision got made that they were either going to have to end up quarantining for like 14 days up in Cairns and wouldn't actually get to do any Olympic prep or they could have that limited prep time on the track um, and at home if they stayed in Sydney in lockdown, which still not ideal, the rest of the Olympics, uh, the Australian team that is up in Cairns is getting to run in mini meets and everything like that and producing some pretty solid results as well but the fact that they've athletics australia has then made sure that they're still able to train in the best way that they can despite the circumstances 
is probably the one positive out of this story. It's still really unfortunate. At least they will still be able to go to the games, though. Like, that's the biggest thing. Yeah, and what a big week it has been for Steve Solomon as well. You know, that's very unique circumstances to be named co-captain of the athletics team uh, alongside Danny Stevens. You know, it's uh, you'd hope he would have wanted to try and get over with the full team as quickly as possible. So hopefully that um, it all works out just fine for them. Um, but yeah, exciting announcement. Obviously, he's no stranger to captaincy roles and things like that. So really keen to see um, how they go about it. Yeah, it's a bit different being captain at World Athletics Championships uh, in 2019. Slightly, slightly bigger. Yeah, just a bit of a bigger stage. But (laughs) I think that both he and Danny will be excellent representations of both that team, but representatives of that team, but also just Australia in general. And, you know, it's always good to see an Olympian like Danny getting, you know, it's her fourth games as well. Like we love our veteran Olympians. As exciting as it is to see the debutants, you know, it's even more impressive to see someone who's made four. Like it's almost off the scale. Yeah, absolutely. And both Steve and Danny have kind of been through plenty of adversity. Danny uh, with that shoulder injury late in 2019 that probably would have knocked her out of the games if it was 12 months ago and Steve's battled some injuries while competing in the US um, at Stanford. So it's also really, you know, if there are two athletes who are going to be fit to lead this team and inspire them to fight through their adversity and be resilient, it is going to be these two. So hopefully that all turns out well for them. Yeah. And I guess in a story that we can't relate to because none of us actually get decent amount of sleep, <laughs> uh a professor that is a sleep expert, Shona Halson, has said that what could cost athletes some medals is their sleeping patterns in Tokyo, which you don't really think of it that way, but it also makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, have you ever tried to do, like, I guess something really intensive when you're a bit sleep deprived? Like, it's not it's not easy when you feel like you can't even really open your eyes. And, you know, these athletes have to be performing at the highest level they possibly can. Um, so it's a very interesting sort of finding, but it, it sounds right to me. It, it sounds right, but at the same time, I think that it's probably not that unusual. I mean, I don't think that you'd get a lot of sleep at the Olympics in any other year either. Um, I mean, imagine somewhere like Rio is a bit of a party city. It probably wouldn't have been hard for athletes to, you know, enjoy the village and soak up that atmosphere as much as possible and in London as well. So I'm a little bit surprised that it comes out, but I, I have a feeling actually that it came out. A similar study was trotted out about a week before the Games four years ago as part of gold medal expectation management. Um, probably and so I wouldn't nine be su- years ago. <laughs> It I wouldn't be, be shocked um, if it might be especially harder when you're sleeping on cardboard beds in Tokyo, which uh, I don't know if you guys have seen those pictures, but hilarious. I hope it becomes a meme out of the games. Um, but <laughs> another thing, another thing that Professor Holson said was she's recommending that they take regular naps during the day, uh, like in between events and in between preparation and things like that, which I think is hilarious. So I can just sort of imagine the coaches being like, all right, guys, it's time for everyone to get into the bedroom and time for our regular nap for the day, (laughs) all part of being a high-performance Olympic athlete. Having spoken to a couple of these uh, high-performance athletes um, at different points, a lot of them are massive exponents of a well-timed nap. So (laughs) I wouldn't 
be shocked if they were well ahead of the health advice on that one and had already planned to have plenty of uh, performance improving sleep. Jackie, you don't, you don't believe in naps though. You think naps make everything worse. No, I, I feel horrible when I wake up from a nap. Like that's just me. I don't get a lot of sleep anyway though. So I'm not like, I'm not a high performance <laughs> athlete. So I also have an opinion that doesn't matter <laughs> in the circumstance of whether naps are good or not. <laughs> this just in from the Inner Sanctum's high-performance Olympic editor. <laughs> she doesn't sleep. Naps don't matter. <laughs> Get it on. You need like a placard or something with that on it. No, so I want to touch back on those cardboard beds though because it's one of the funniest stories I think out of it is um, – the propaganda of this week, I'm going to phrase it as, was that those cardboard beds will not be able to support the weight of two people or sudden movements. Yeah, I saw that I, as well. Ironically, I think that though, relates, that relates was, to a story that we talked about last week. Yeah, but ironically, though, and this is why I'm going to call it propaganda because I think that it's all a load of... Mm, um, <laughs> is that... Two years ago, they were saying that they could support two people on those beds. So... Why would you make worse beds in the last two years rather than, and it's more just that they're being like, please don't have fun bedroom business rather than they're actually going to break. And if there's a story that a bed breaks because of something going on in the bedrooms over the Olympics, it'll possibly be the single funniest story of the games. I mean, I think I recall a story from Rio that uh, someone competing in the horizontal gymnastics broke a bed um, in the village. So I, I know that they're discouraging um, such competitions this year at the Olympics, but we'll wait and see. But now that we are well and truly off topic, <laughs> um, it might be a chance now that we're just under a week out from the Games to, to chat about what we're looking forward to about the Games. Um, and any particular events and athletes that we're looking forward to seeing. So we've had a bit of a look and the Inner Sanctum as a whole had a bit of a look and you can read those articles on our website, innersanctum.com.au. But it has been a good chance um, this week as things have settled down in terms of selection news to really think about the games ahead. And Alex, there's a couple of things that you're quite looking forward to, aren't there? Yeah, look, I've got a few athletes that I'm sort of keeping an eye on. In general, I'm excited to see the new sports that are obviously making their debut at the Games, the skateboarding, the sports climbing. Um, obviously, like, just seeing athletes that have never gotten the chance to be on this big of a stage before, I think will be absolutely incredible. Um, for me, uh, there's a sports climber who's sort of ended up on my radar, a young woman by the name of Oceana McKenzie, who is one of the, I believe, the best all-time Australian performing sports climbers, um, which it isn't hard. We're not like a huge um, a huge sports climbing crew or nation. She finished sixth at the Bouldering World Cup in 2019. Uh, she won the Oceania Championships in December 2020, which earned her a spot in the team. Um, so I'm excited to see how the sport goes at an Olympic level. It's incredibly high intensity to watch. I don't think I've ever seen anyone climb anything that quickly before in my life. So I'm really keen to see it in a competition format like the Olympics. It's pretty insane. I'm just glad that Peter Parker is not eligible to compete for Team USA because that'd be another gold medal sewn up. Jesus Christ, Dan. <laughs> um, I just, I hope that 
with the sports climbing at the very least, it puts on such a good show that there is the argument for the next games or the, and subsequently as it goes on for there to be medals for the speed bouldering and lead climbing on their own. So there's an overall medal, but similar to the gymnastics, there's individual medals for those separate things because it will give like specialists the best opportunity to do well and as you said with Oceana McKenzie her speciality is probably bouldering which is not the same to lead and speed climbing Mm. um that speed climbing goes so quick it's insane um but yeah it's just one of those sports that I hope grows with the Olympics after this year particularly if it's successful yeah, 100%. In terms of other sports as well, um, I really enjoyed watching the shooting at the Commonwealth Games in 2018. Um, Sergei Glevsky is a guy who's obviously come from a long line of uh, sporting uh, talent and, of course, shooters as well. His mum represented Australia at five Olympics, I believe it was. She last competed at 2016 as well in Rio. So awesome to see the sort of baton being handed over for the family with him. He's got a great story. He's a great down-to-earth guy as well. I spoke to him just last week um, and he's also a local to my area too. So that helps too um, to get around the local guys. One of the sports that I'm looking forward to isn't a new sport entirely, but it's a new event. So in the triathlon this year, for the first time, we've got the mixed team relay. Um, And so each athlete will compete a super sprint distance triathlon. They will tag the next person in their team and we'll see them off to the races again. And I think that's going to be incredible to watch it's not quite the endurance spectacle that a normal triathlon is but but watching how the teams plan their athletes and how they manage the transitions is going to be a lot of fun I think yeah that's one of those ones that you and I figured out what it was together essentially we were just looking up for the research for the episode where we were talking about the triathlon and we were just like mixed relay this doesn't make any sense and then like after looking into it it was like oh this is going to be really really cool to watch and and speaking to Emma Jeffcoat this week who is hoping to be part of that mixed relay team um, it hasn't yet been confirmed who's in the team but we won gold at the 2019 world championships in the mixed relay so we are hoping to have some high expectations and to carry some good form in. Um, And it would be really cool to bring home the first mixed relay gold medal for triathlon at the Olympics, I think. Yeah, another exciting new sport, but also will be a favourite, I think, for anyone that likes basketball is the three-on-three. The five-a-side basketball is amazing um, and we can touch on that every single day of the Olympics almost. But the three-on-three with the format, the excitement that goes on around it, just watching those tournaments, you're just like, oh, this is like the perfect Olympic sport because it's shorter. They're only 10-minute games um, and it's first to 21 if it doesn't go to the time limit, I should say. But, yeah, it's unfortunate that we won't get to see any Aussies, but I think that that's one that I'm just going to tune into whenever I'm like – feeling like I need to put a different sport on. Yeah, I will say uh, we spoke to Marina Whittle, who plays for the Adelaide Lightning in the WNBL. She's represented Australia in 3 by 3 before, and she gave a glowing endorsement um, of the sport. You know, it's so they are so different, um, you know, five-court five basketball and 3 by 3 But I think the Inner Sanctum will endorse 3 by 3 as one of our favourite sports coming into the Olympics. So absolutely <laughs> make sure you watch some of that. 
And in the vein of the other uh, kind of shorter, faster, less people on the field of play sports, uh, rugby sevens is one I'm looking forward to. We obviously pulled off the shock of the games in Rio when we won gold in the women's, um, somehow beating New Zealand. And that's something that I think a lot of people expect us not to be able to do this time. Um, but aside from uh, Nathan Lawson, who is making his debut, it is a very experienced rugby seven side. Um, they have about 187 caps between them. Um, and they are hoping in the men's to do well. And the women's, while they'll be missing Chloe Dalton, um, Charlotte Caslick will still be dominant, I think. And that's going to be a great team to watch. Uh, and for all these sports that we just talked about, of course, you can find all our event previews for all of those on theinnersanctum.com.au. Jackie and Dan especially led the charge on getting all those previews done. Heaps of research. Everybody put in the work for them. They're fantastic. You won't find any better across Australia. So make sure you have a look at all of those. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll talk about like predictions a little bit as well because from here on out, the pod is essentially going to be daily recaps uh how many medals and how many gold medals especially do we reckon that australia is going to win this year i think looking back at rio it was eight golds and 29 medals um i think that was what was considered a fairly disappointing game so we'd be hoping to do a bit better this time Um, my prediction is that we will do a little bit better i think we're going to end up with 10 gold medals and about 32 overall Um, i think we're going to pick up a lot of medals in the team events and um, having someone like Ariana Titmus emerge in the pool to support people like Katie McKeon gives us hope of, you know, it's going to be tough to beat someone like Katie Ledecky, but there's someone who can definitely challenge for the medals in those events. Yeah, I think that we're not going to do as well in the pool as we expect, but I've been saying that for weeks. Um, in regards to Katie Ledecky is just so hard to be, and it is very much feeling like it's going to be a lot of silver medals to Katie Ledecky <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. But I would agree with the sentiment of 10 gold, especially as that of that being like the expectation slash pass mark. I think that we have the potential to get about 13 at most. But I think total medal wise at the same time we're going to be looking like more the numbers from london and beijing which were in the mid 30s early 40s it's just where those medals come from as dan said we're a really good chance to pick up some in team sports basketball's just become all the more interesting because of these scrimmages um i (laughs) it sounds like the weirdest take ever in a lot of ways i think australia is a good chance to get a gold medal in the basketball this year i don't think we're going to get two and i think it's it's still a shoot for the moon kind of situation but either in the men's or women's i think there is the potential to get a gold and then it's quite possible that we're just not going to medal in the other event that's always the way it's been is that we medal in the women's and the men do nothing. Maybe this year it'll be a reverse in the most extreme circumstances where the men somehow steal gold. I'm going to, I'm going to be as optimistic as possible. And I'm going to say we should be shooting for, if not top five medal count close to, I know you guys are giving the more realistic view of it, but I don't know, just sort of looking over the past couple of years, London, um, we finished eighth total medal count was 35. Germany were fifth with 44. So if you can sort of pick up those few medals here and there to catch up to the big dogs, I think a, a mid, thir- mid to late 30s medal count, crack that sort of 
sixth overall this year, like we're saying 10 or 11 gold, something like that, I think is very very achievable, Um, especially after so many of the athletes we've spoken to for the Inner Sanctum have said that they have really appreciated the extra year, not just in terms of their preparation, but also making them hungrier to achieve results. I know it will be the same for everyone, but we are a country that prides itself on our sporting performances. And if we do not do well at these Olympics, uh, we're not going to be, we're not going to have much pride as a nation. I think there are two things that kind of play into that for us um, and, and for your hope, Alex. And, and one of those is the fact that surfing is a new event. Um, that's two gold medals now on offer. And we've got a fairly strong chance in, in each, particularly the women's. Um, with Sally Fitzgibbon and Steph Gilmore is a, a really strong duo and they're both a really good chance. But we also, for the first time in a long time, have a lot of athletics hopes. Um, we've got people like Nicola McDermott, um, who's high jumping better than anyone else in the world this year. Um, and people like Nina Kennedy and the pole vault and even Stewie McSwain in the 800. You know, we've got some athletes who are in some of the best forms of their careers. And I don't remember a time when we had this many highly touted athletics athletes. And I think that's really exciting for us and is a chance to bring home those extra medals. Yeah. The high jump with the women's is particularly interesting because there's not a lot separating uh, either of our high jump entries. Um, They're both jumping very close to the current world record. I believe Nicola McDermott jumped a 201 a few weeks ago and the world record is 203. So that's an Olympic gold medal jump in a lot of respects but she's got to be able to bring that in I think 14 days time come the athletics event at the Olympics and still be in that good of form with obviously the travel the strange way that the bubble is going to work within the Olympic village that that in a lot of ways changes things that Olympic bubble could have athletes have performances that no one ever saw coming and it can also hurt athletes performances in the end yeah i think it'll be really interesting to see how that goes and it does give me a little bit of hope that um you know people who are from australia who have had some really tough lockdowns like in melbourne um and now in sydney and athletes from around the world who've had those really tough moments are going to be able to handle that well Um, And that gives me optimism that we're going to pull out a couple of performances that we can attribute solely to resilience and the ability to pull it together in the bubble. And I think that might help us, but I don't want to set the expectation there. I think I'd rather set it low and be pleasantly surprised. While we are making predictions, I do have a Matilda's prediction. Uh, We talked a bit about off-air Sam Kerr's scoring drought. Um, I think I'm backing in Kyra Cooney-Cross to score her first Olympic goal on obviously Olympic debut before Kerr breaks her goal drought. That is going to happen. I liked what I've seen of her in these practice games. I liked what I saw of her in the game I covered last week. Um, she looks hungry. She wants to score. So I'm backing Kyra in. Old of you to predict that. I have a far less optimistic prediction for the Matildas. Down a <laughs> damn. <laughs> based on current form, we're a chance not to score um, and not to proceed through the group stages, which I think would be a real shame and would probably be a, an underperformance for this very talented team. But um, the way they're playing, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility. Yeah, I'm not here for your negativity. Um, <laughs> I think that we're a good chance to score in that game against New Zealand at the very least. <laughs> I, I will not hear Jackie talking about Matilda's negativity when 
she is the queen of Matilda's negativity. <laughs> That's not true at all. I was the one that had the yeah. crazy prediction in one of the first few weeks that we are a dark horse. That was right after we lost to Germany and the Netherlands. It's only yeah, gotten um, worse. No, I'm the, the regular downer Dan. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, though, with the Matildas at the very least, um, Sam Kerr is definitely missing her Chelsea partner in crime, Frank Kirby. That's how she's gotten a lot of her goals that earned her the golden boot in the Women's Super League is just crossing from Kirby. Unfortunately, Kirby's English, so she will mm. not be playing for Australia. No, I definitely but, have not quite seen that connection between her and someone like a Caitlin Ford or someone like that. Um, just hasn't quite been the same. Yeah, I think that they need to f- figure out what's going on and they need to figure it out by the time they play New Zealand on Thursday. Ooh, check your watches, yeah. Yeah. I guess, does anyone have any other, like, funny predictions? Because... <laughs> There's always some crazy stuff that happens around the Olympics. I don't think we're going to have any repeats of Ryan Lochte, that's for sure. Or Green I, I do predict that an athlete will be disqualified from the Games for breaching the bubble. I think we're going to see it. Someone's going to get tossed out of the Games for flaunting the rules. I think it's going to be a great shame, but my money's on it happening. Oh, um, my sure. other out-of-left-field prediction or, or less fun prediction is that I think there will be a tech screw-up during the opening ceremony, and I think we'll have a glitch where the broadcasters have up the message, broadcast will return shortly um, for at least a <laughs> moment or two. Um, I think we're going to see something like that that just strikes of 2020 and 2021. Wow, you really are negative, even though I fully buy it, given that I've seen it happen with the AFL. I think something, speaking of, like, cool tech things, though, is that at the IOC press conference last night, they announced that they were going to be like filtering in crowd noise, um, which we've seen that in Australia on TV and it is weird and I hate it. But what they will be doing rather than it just being for the television audiences is that it will be catered to the specific sports and pumped into the arenas. So you can just hear like the Olympic Stadium in Tokyo. It'll be going off and the athletes will be able to hear it but the stands will be empty, which will be very strange to look at, but it is a cool tech thing. Does that mean that in the tennis we'll have one person yelling as the player starts to serve or will they <laughs> they not pipe that in? Or right, I'm going a bold prediction on this uh, surround sound audio thing then. Someone saying some form of swear word will be audibly visible within moments of them using this system. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um <laughs> Oh, I, sorry, visibly audible, rather. I'm just wondering, like, on the tennis, because when there's a really long rally, like, you hear the crowd starting to be like, oh, oh, <laughs> like, every single hit. And it's like, are they going to do that? Or is it just going to be, like, the good cheering, like, if it's a standard point, and then the nuts cheering if it's, like, an ace or, like, the end of a really long rally? Because there is still strange ambient noises almost in the middle of a rally when you're actually supposed to be silent <laughs> i do think it'll be fun to see and and there's so much ahead for the games um it's hard to believe that at time of recording we're six days out from you know the competition really kicking off and five days out from the opening ceremony um but it is going to be a great chance to to stay up to date following the inner sanctum um, and i think jackie's got a bit more info on that yeah so <laughs> The Inner Sanctum's program, I guess the best way to phrase it, of how we're going to be doing things from now on is 
starting from the 21st, there will be Olympics coverage every day on the website. Um, the first day, it'll obviously be a lot more mild because it's just softball and football going ahead. So we'll just have recaps of the matches and the Australians that are going on there. We play Japan in the softball at 10 a.m. Australian Eastern time. So there will definitely be something about that. That is the first Olympic event for 2020, no, Tokyo 2020. But from there, we will have a podcast on the night of the 21st again because that is when we will find out as to whether Brisbane 2032 will go ahead. But skipping on to the 23rd, which is the opening ceremony night, from there, we'll do podcast content, video content, and also written content. The written content is going to feature a live blog, an Aussie recap, a swimming and all athletics recap, if depending on the day. And then just a daily recap for all the massive stories that have been really cool to see. We're going to cover every Australian that wins a gold medal, but also just awesome Australian stories, especially if people make finals in unexpected events. So really look forward to... A, covering it all, but also getting to see people to read it and that sort of thing. Alex? Yeah, while we are on softball and baseball, um, obviously we have a resident softball and baseball expert, Jason Irvine, who they will be all over the action, of course, at Tokyo. Jason's got some fantastic stories already up on the website, um, and I highly recommend giving Jason a follow if you are around all things softball or baseball at Jace Irves on Twitter. They'll have all the news, of course, and will obviously be giving us top-tier coverage of softball and baseball. I cannot wait to read it because Jason's articles have been fire recently. Yeah, and you and I would know because we get to edit them all. (laughs) (laughs) But on top of that, I think that it's just going to be a very exciting time, a very busy time for the three of us, that's for sure. But there's so many interesting voices within the Inner Sanctum and it will not just be myself and Dan on the podcast every night. We will be filtering in a litany of Inner Sanctum voices with their own takes. They will be running the show and I'm really excited to see people get to take over the pod every now and then. (laughs) (laughs) Give a bit of a chop out to you two crazy people. That brings us to the end of the last Ascending Olympus podcast episode before Tokyo 2020 commences. You can find us on Twitter at Ascending Olipod. And as we've plugged three or four times throughout this episode, you can read any articles that we've written about the Olympics on the innersanctum.com.au. Thanks for listening and we'll see you every single day throughout the Olympics.